Hi, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Why, a podcast that showcases the greatness of people through their life stories. Each episode will capture insight into the lives of people just like you and I, with the intention to connect, align, and create inspiration for and with our listeners. Stay with us through our What's and Why segment, where we dive into our guest perspective with some thought-provoking questions that just might be right up your alley. I'm your host, Helen Dillon, and thanks for joining us. Now let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of What's Your Why? I have a couple of housekeeping items before introducing my next guest. Firstly, I want to thank you for joining me again. I can't stress enough how thankful we are for the support and encouragement that we receive from our amazing community of listeners. Secondly, I want to share some very exciting news. Heather and I are thrilled that we've surpassed the 6,000 download mark, and that is also thanks to you. What's Your Why is a passion project for us, and one that we're so excited to keep bringing you. Our stories are very different, but our What's Your Why story is similar to that of our next guest. It's similar in that we continue to serve our passion project with fingers crossed that our hard work and effort pay off and we continue to gain ground doing something we love. Fame and fortune wouldn't be bad additions to the story either, but one foot in front of the other, right? I was elated and honored to sit down with director extraordinaire Ron Davis, who's accredited to bringing us so many amazing documentaries. He's the brainchild behind some that might be familiar to you, such as Harry and Snowman and Life in the Doghouse, and others that you may not be as familiar with, like Pageant and Miss You Can Do It. In our conversation, Ron also talks about a few films with 2022 release dates that I have no doubt will be the epitome of success and great additions to his amazing roster. Ron Davis is a breath of fresh air. Amidst his charm and charisma, I had an exceptional, candid conversation with him and one that I'm hoping that you'll enjoy as much as I did. In addition to this, I learned something new as well. To check your ego at the door and let the best idea in the room win. Enjoy. The only way you can be the best is if you're smart enough to put the best around you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today. No problem. It seems like you've had a diverse path in your in your destination. And I don't want to say that this is your destination because I know that life is always changing. I'm too young for my destination. You're too young, right? (laughs) Exactly. I noticed that you had sort of a big career early on. You spent 10 years in New York and you were in the publishing industry. Tell me a little bit about what caused your redirect, I guess, to the film industry. I was in publishing for about 15 years. And when I was the last five, seven years, something like that, I was vice president of a division of Barnes Noble, and I was handling specialized sales, corporate sales, international sales, rights, things like that. Mm-hmm. And But my hobby was the filmmaking and making documentaries, and I put myself through evening classes, you know, and everyone in my job knew what I was doing and supported it, and they thought it was fun. I did it on the weekends. I did it at night. And then at some point, it was like around 2000, no, 2010, sorry, I'm not that old. <laughs> I changed and decided that I wanted to do it full time and turned my hobby into my career. Was there something in particular that made you realize that that's what you wanted your destiny to be? Yes. I'll be very honest because I got fired Okay, (laughs) from my book publishing job. And I had wanted to change my career. I wanted to make filmmaking my career. But I was scared to change it because I had such a good role and I, you know, I kept dipping my toe in it and being fired. 
basically pushed me into the pool. And I had a choice to make. I could either get another publishing job, which would have not been as, you know, that difficult. Mm -hmm. Or I could start all over again. And I was, you know, 42 at the time. So I figured, what the hell? You know, I could do it once. So I just, you know, jumped in and did it. I bought an editing system and I set up my apartment in New York to edit. I had shot this film that was not edited. And I just, I got people and mentors to help me. And then I got within seven months, I had a deal with HBO. What did that feel like? Well, until I got the deal with HBO, it felt like utter fear, yeah. uh, panic, yeah. desperation. What am I going to do? I'm going to be out of money. I'm going to have no career. So, But then when I got the HBO, it was a sense of relief, relief the sense of, yes, I made the right decision to not keep going with publishing. And it was a relief. Yeah. It was a huge relief. That process, how long did you say it was for? So you were... Did you say seven or nine months that you were something like that? Like I, I was fired in January, literally the day I got back from New Year's Eve vacation. New Year's oh vacation. God. What was that vacation. like? <laughs> you know what? That was horrible. Only because I got fired for something that I didn't do. I had no idea. They it was it was they fired me for giving away company information or something. I for something, something like ridiculous. That. Something that didn't happen. Right and. The next several months was trying to get my severance, trying to get everything organized, mm-hmm. you know, to protect myself because I got so, you know, screwed. Mm-hmm. And then it probably, I think by, that was January, by August, I had the HBO deal signed, sealed and delivered. And that was for your first film, right? Which was, was it pageant? Pageant I had done first, but I did it. That was my hobby. Pageant was a, a hobby project. I did okay. it at night. I did it on weekends, did it on vacation. Yeah. The next film was the HBO one was Miss You Can Do It, where I shot the film as a hobby while I was publishing, then put it on the shelf because I didn't have any money and I didn't have time. And then when I got fired, I pulled it off the shelf, learned how to edit, edited out a rough cut of the film, and then HBO picked it up from there. That's amazing. Like That story just on its own is amazing that you just did something as a passion project and HBO just picked it up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I remember at the time thinking, oh my God, I've arrived. I made it. It's going to be easy from here on out. And it's not. And little like, did you know. Little did I know that every single project was going to go right back to the beginning. Now, did it make it a little easier? Yes. Mm-hmm. I had the HBO film. People were more willing to give me money. People were more willing to take a look at my film because I wasn't a quote unquote novice beginner. I was still a novice, but it wasn't my first you know, new filmmaker trying to make a new film. Yeah, for sure. But it's just as hard every time you make a film to try to raise the money, come up with the funding. It's just, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I can imagine it takes a village. No, it takes money. (laughs) It takes money and a village on the side. (laughs) You mentioned that you were 42 when you got fired? Yes. I have to say, you look like you're 35. (laughs) Seriously. No, I'm (laughs) I'm 53. I'm going to be 54 in six months. Well, be proud of that. I have to thank my mother and my father because it's good genes. It was good genes. They look young. I smoked for 20 years. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be smooth. Good. You (laughs) definitely are. You look amazing. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Like in the very beginning and, and film was sort of a, a hobby or a passion project, something you did on the side. How did you even discover that that was something you were interested in or that you needed to do at a certain time in your life? A friend of mine from college was out in LA. He worked in TV and production 
And he, he created these videos, sort of like, this is your life, for different occasions, whether it was his bar, someone's bar mitzvah or his, his brother's wedding. And he showed me his brother's wedding video when I was out there visiting him. And this light bulb went off in my head and I said, oh, I want to do one of these for my best friend who's turning 40 in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I said, but I, have, I can visualize it in my head. I know exactly what it would look like, what it would sound like, but I'm clueless. I have no idea how to do it. Right. And so I raised money to hire him to work with me and do it. And I directed it and did all the interviews. And then he did all the editing and we worked together on that. And after that three months, it turned out to be this really great half an hour. It was supposed to be a five minute video. It turned right. out to be a half an hour mock E True Hollywood story. <laughs> and it turned out really good. And I said to him, What are you going to do now? You can't just like leave me out hanging. Like, what I've got to keep, I love this. I've got to keep doing it. And he said to me, You're talented, but you don't know what you're doing. So go take some courses. And when you're done and you're ready, we will do a project together. And that's. And so I went, I took two 12 week night courses back to back. And then I went to, to my friend and I said, I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. And let's do uh, Miss Gay America. Yeah. Which turned out to be the movie pageant. I have more questions about that later that you may or may not feel comfortable answering, but uh, let me sort of get through onto the next step. So, well, firstly, how do you find your stories? Do they come to you? Do you seek them out? Is it always sort of through people you know? Is it part of an industry that you're just a part of? How does that happen? Different ways. Miss, you can do a pageant came to me because I had been to a, a Miss Gay America regional pageant when I was in college. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by it. Yeah. Miss, you can do it. I read an article about the woman in People magazine mm-hmm. and contacted her. Wow. Harry and Snowman was a book about called The $80 Champion. And I know Mr. Dillaire. I don't know him well, but I know of Mr. Dillaire, who obviously recently passed. and. I knew some of his family members at the time, and it's an inspiration. That movie is inspirational. I really loved it. Oh, thank you. It's a great, it's an inspirational story. It's yeah, like, it's unreal. Yeah, you don't, it's like you don't believe it. Yeah. So that one, someone mentioned to me because I did. I knew who Harry Delaire was. I didn't know the story of the Snowman. It was way before my time. Right. And then Life in the Doghouse about Danny and Ron's rescue. Mm-hmm. I was looking for another rescue dog. And people said, oh, you got to go to Danny and Ron's rescue. And okay. I went in and met them and I saw the house and how they do it. I, I remember I said, I only met them 10 minutes. And I said, you guys are my next film. Aren't they amazing? They just laughed and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we know each other. <laughs> and I said, I'm finishing up Harry and Snowman. When I'm done, I'm going to come and I'm going to do one on you. Yeah. So they just sort of come to me. The, they find you. You don't find that you have to seek them out. No, I don't sit down and say, what can I do next? Yeah. Because if I do that. I come up with nothing. Yeah. There's just different ideas. And I have, you know, like a folder, on an online folder, not a folder folder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got pieces of paper in front of me, so. <laughs> I have ideas of things that strike me, working on one about multiple, uh, what used to be called multiple personality disorder. It's just about finished. And that one's been on my mind since 2013. Oh, wow. And it just took a long time. And then I've got another one about a transgender woman that we're finishing up this year that has been on my mind for almost 20 years when I first read a book about this woman. Wow. So they, you know, they just sort of come to me. Now the, the, the para gold one about the para Olympian, someone came to me mm-hmm. and said, you know, would you like to do it? I want to produce it for you. I knew nothing about 
para-athletes right. or para-equestrians. And I said, well, let me go check it out. And I checked it out and I thought it could be a really inspiring story. Yeah. Are you intertwined in the equestrian world at all? Because some of the things that you've the projects you've done are relatable or related in some way, shape or form. They're connected in some way. Two of them, three of them are connected to the horse world. Three out of the seven. Yeah. And I used to be an equestrian back in my childhood. I rode okay. till I was about 25. So I know a lot of people like I could, I was able to get to Harry Dallaire because I knew some people that knew him. Yeah. I know a lot of horse show people. I know the horse show marketing companies. So I was able to harness the the power of that community to raise money for some of these films. Yeah. So that's why I'm sort of connected. And then because of those two films that I did, the dog house and Harry and snowman, mm-hmm. uh, the, woman who wanted to do Paragold came, knew those films, knew someone who knew me and came to me. So the horse world has been, you know, integral. Yeah. Beneficial for sure. Very beneficial for launching a bunch of the film. How does a story resonate with you? How do you decide that, yep, this is, this is definitely going to be a blockbuster or one that I'm going to sell or one that I even want to put effort into. Have you ever come across something that you're like, Oh God, that's not for me. Yeah, people have pitched me different things and I don't get them. And like that's why I think I think they have to come to me because I have to feel something and see something mm-hmm. in it that connects that I connect to because I'm going to be working on it for 2 or 3 years and I mm-hmm. have to be passionate about it. Yeah. And there's also some sense of inspiration in the film or I don't want to do it. There's something you're overcoming something. It's an underdog. Yeah. In some way. How did you carve out that niche? I didn't. It just sort of carved me out. Right. You know, those are the films that I connect with, that I like to make, uh, and that I think I do well. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of how it is. You know, I don't do war. I don't do politics. Those are things that other people do those better than me. Right. It's just not something I would really connect. I wouldn't want to chase a politician around and figure out, you know, no. (laughs) No. I don't want to go to somewhere that's war-torn. I like documentaries that you could actually go on a date with on a Friday night and be like, wow, you know, you've had all this whole plethora of emotions and I'm leaving feeling inspired. Yeah. Yeah. Great stories, right? Yeah. Versus a lot of documentaries that, you know, you want to slit your wrists at the end of it and say, my God, I can't believe this exists in the world. Definitely. I would agree with you there. Except for nature stuff. I love Sir David Attenborough. I mean, oh, my favorite. I would listen to him, you know, talk and open it. I would watch him open a paper bag. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I agree with you. He would make it really interesting. Very. He could do an hour long documentary on just doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Why documentaries and not uh, like feature films, if that's even the right? No, it isn't right. It's a good question because when I was starting this as a hobby, it was something I could do. I could make a documentary. They were, you know, I didn't need the experience. I didn't need years in film school, which I I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find the funding to make a feature film, right. but I could find the funding to make a documentary. And I, I sort of liked, I like true stories. So will I cross over at some point? It's very hard to do that. And I don't mm-hmm. know that I would, Yeah, but I'm open to it. Yeah. Yeah. You wear a lot of hats, all the hats, right? When you're making a documentary. You're the producer, you're the director, you're the development director to raise the money. You know, you have to pretty much do it all. The researcher, the writer, the co-writer, the everything. Right. I mean, you you utilize people and you hire different producers and you hire like, you know, if you're looking for archive stuff, you hire an archive producer. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's your project, your baby. You have to, you know, drive that ship. How do you learn how to wear all those hats? I don't know. 
just doing it, doing it. It was just experience and doing it and knowing, okay, now I need money. I have to figure out where to get it. So there's your development part. Yeah. You know, I got to figure out what the story is. Who do I want to film? What do I want to film? I have to make that decision because the whole movie's in my head. Right. With, the, with regards to the editing, when the editor's putting it together, I have to be able to convey what I want it to be about and also give notes and critique when it's not working mm-hmm. or when it's working. Mm-hmm. You know, you do it all. And then you've got to work on, you have to do the contracts for the distribution deal. I've got to hire an agent if that's the route that I'm going down. You know, sometimes you have an agent, sometimes you don't. So it's it's 50% business. Right. And then 50% creative, for sure. So if you're not a business person in, in the documentary world, in the sense of being able to think that way, I, I don't think you could do it mm-hmm. unless you had a partner that had that. Right. Did you ever feel lost? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the whole process, <laughs> do you ever feel, feel found then, I guess? Yeah, almost every film has a point for me where I think, oh my God, this sucks. It's going to be horrible. This is going to be the total bomb. Yeah. The dog. Yeah. Um, because until it's done, it's not good. You just keep working it, massaging it. It's like a piece of art. Until it's done, it's not done. You know, you don't like it. Yeah. Until it's done, it's not working. And, you know, almost every one of my films, well, the first three for sure, four, I'd show my husband a rough cut. And he'd like, with Love Me Harry and Snowman, he looked at me and he went, huh. He goes, it's kind of boring. Really? <laughs> On the first version. Yeah. And then I had to get in. I mean, Harry and Snowman was very hard. It was my first film totally on my own. It was complicated to put it together because Snowman was only really around for four years of Harry's 80-year life. Yes. How do you keep the horse alive through the whole movie? We had two editors. We had two composers because the music was too sappy on the first one. It took an extra eight months. And for a long time, it really wasn't working. Wow. And then when it worked... It worked. You're like, oh, obviously, this is the way it should have been. Yeah. Because when you watch it, you just assume, well, this is just how we made it because it's the way it's supposed to be. Absolutely. But if you saw the crap that it looked like before. (laughs) I wouldn't even believe it. No. And that's the case with almost every single one. Like the the way I describe what I do is that it's like a thousand piece puzzle. You dump all the pieces onto a table. But in my world, all of the pieces are white. Okay. And until you put all of the pieces in the right place, the picture and the story won't come alive. And when they're all in the right place, there you go. There's your picture. Because you're really just piecing things together at the beginning saying, oh, will this work? Will that work? I think this scene might work. And when you're filming it, you're like, yeah, this is great. And then when you see it on the screen, it doesn't work. It's boring. Yeah. Or vice versa. Yeah. Something's like so boring and you don't even know why you're shooting it. And you go back into the editing room and you say, wow. That this was magic. Great. That, that made was great. It. Yeah. 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 I know that it seems to be a little bit of an on-trend topic or, I mean, maybe it's not, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'm hearing a lot about imposter syndrome. Do you feel like that's ever touched you in life or you've ever suffered from that? I mean, wearing all of those hats, you have all to be time. good at so many things, right? I felt like an imposter in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s. I felt like every job that I got <laughs> that I fooled them. I got this past them. I never thought, how the hell am I going to do it? But I, it's failure. I feel like, oh, God, my God. What drives me is like, oh, this is not going to work. This is going to fail. How did I get this? How did I get here? Oh, this is a mistake. This is all luck. Yeah. How do you get past that? 
you just keep going through it. You just don't stop moving forward for me. So at 53 now, you can still feel that way, but feel comfortable with it and just keep moving forward. It gets better. I mean, yeah. it gets definitely better as you get older. But if a film's not working or you can't raise the money or I'm not getting the feedback that I was hoping to get, you slip right back in. I mean, you know, it's normal. It's natural. Insecurities come up. You know, insecurities don't go away. The one, You know, I don't believe they go away throughout your life. You learn how to manage them and they become less intense. Even if you're uber successful, those people still have insecurities. Yeah. I mean, whatever you feel, whether you feel ugly, you don't feel smart, you know, whatever it is that you have felt since your childhood, I don't believe that goes away. It, you know, it wears down like water and a glacier wear down the rock. Yeah. But the rock's still there. Yeah. If you could give a younger version of yourself advice, what would it be? Don't do the ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> Put it down. <laughs> <laughs> It would be be more confident to tell myself to be more confident in my instincts and my decisions. Speak up more in meetings. Because when I was young, I thought everybody was so smart and everything they were doing was so smart. And so it, like everybody was just elevated. And then when you get into your 30s and 40s, you realize, no, everyone feels the same way they did. They just have more responsibility and more experience behind them that they know what they're doing. Yeah. And that I, yeah, I didn't speak up a lot in my twenties and meetings. I was very, I was shy, and I would tell myself to just speak up. Yeah, trust. What was your best decade so far? My best decade. Most people say their twenties. No, no, no. I'd say my forties because yeah. I'm only early in my fifties, and we, and, you know, I'm fifty-three, and we've gone through COVID for a year and a half. So this has not been the best beginning of no. a decade, right? But my forties. When I figured out what I wanted to do, I had this hobby going on, and I converted the hobby over, and I moved to Florida. I'd say that decade so far has been the strongest. I think as you get older, you figure out that the decade you learn the most in makes you the most diverse and versatile, and that's the, that's the best one. Even though you have a lot of bad bumps and things like that, it's, that becomes the best. Yeah, my 20s was fun, but I was... Yeah, and then my 30s was good. I like how you just didn't continue that sentence about your 20s. Yeah, well, 20s was. <laughs> 20s was what it was. You know what I mean? I was, I was coming out. I got depressed. You know, I got my new job. I traveled around the world for work, which is good. But it was a little mix of everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, in 20, you look back now, 20 is like a child. Oh my God, right. 20 to 25, you're a child. And you, you know, there's so many changes, so many friends, you know. But what I got out of my 20s was some of my best friends that I have today. Most of my friends have been around from 19 to 25. I met them. Oh, good for you. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, they're that. all long-term. I mean, some of the ones now that are almost 60 don't want to, I'm not allowed to talk about <laughs> years. If I say we've been friends for 30 years, I'll get kicked under the table. Oh, probably. Maybe they don't all look as good as you, right? Oh, no, they're working on it. They have surgery. Oh, well, that's perfect. They make things for that now. <laughs> Do you have any tips for those that might be sharing the same path that you've taken so far? From a filmmaking point of view, you know, this sounds like a cliche, but be true to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's again, trust your instincts. Mm -hmm. I guess my advice would be surround yourself with people that are better at their job than you are, whether it's a camera person, a sound person, an editor. Don't get intimidated and try to be, think you can be the best at everything. Yeah. Because you can't. The only way you can be the best is if you're smart enough to put the best around you and 
let them give you their advice, let them give you their experience. And then you determine which part of that you want to use. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of people when they're younger feel the need to know everything Mm -hmm. and how to do it all. And they shoot themselves in the foot by hiring people that they can be in charge of. And I think they want to present themselves that way too, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And I've never been that way. I, cause I used to, I used to have the philosophy of, well, I already got the job. So in order to keep the job, I better put people around me that are going to make me look really good. Well, that's a good philosophy. Yeah, and it's work. I did yeah. it in book publishing and I, you know, I, and I do it now. You just, you have to check your ego at the door and let the best idea in the room win. Yeah. That's not like the first time we've not heard that. Not necessarily your idea. Right. Yeah. I want to, if it's okay with you, talk a little bit about the pageant. I'm really, I'm not well versed, but I'm very intrigued at why a film like that in 2000 and was it eight? 2008 it was released, but you had been working on it pri- prior to, right? Since 2006, yeah. Right. And that was such a, and I'm, I might be wrong because I'm not really vested in the community, but was it not a little bit of a turbulent time or a tumultuous time in the LGBTQ plus community? And for a film like that to come out in 2008, was it hard to get off the ground or did you find it easy or was there a lot of support for it? In 2008, it was hard to get it off the ground because now in 2021, drag is all the rage. Right. Female impersonation. People love it. They can't eat it up. You've got RuPaul's Drag Race, which broke down barriers. Back then, people had a different image of it. it totally. Was- I mean, gay marriage was not, not legal yet. It wasn't even about gay marriage. I mean, if you were gay, it was one thing. If you were a drag queen, you were even you were at the bottom of the the heap. You know, you were either a drug addict or you you were some guy that wanted to be a woman or liked dressing in women's clothes. You you, you know, alcoholic, hung out in bars. There was no sense of the artistry of it. Yeah. So it was hard to get off the ground. People, I remember people saying to me, "Who's going to want to watch that?" Really? Mm-hmm. I just believed in it. I said, "I just, I think I." You know, it's not what you expect. These guys are artists. passionate artists mm-hmm. and they've found their niche. You know, they wanted to perform, they wanted to act and they found where they, where they fit the best. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember going to uh, Key West with a girlfriend of mine years and years ago. So it probably would have been in and around that time, 2008, 9, 10, somewhere like that. And we went to a drag show and I remember walking in and sitting down with her and saying, these people are more attractive than I will ever be in my entire life. And it has taken hours for them to get like, I was just so fun. I mean, I couldn't even imagine that that was a part of a community that was squelched, you know, in the past. And I'm 43. So, you know, been through a little bit of that and part of the equestrian community, which has a big homosexual representation and more. And uh, I don't know, it's, it amazes me that people weren't more open-minded back then. Even in the gay community, they weren't, they didn't love drag. A lot of people didn't love drag queens because of the stigma that if you were gay, you wanted to dress up in women's clothing. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've never heard that before. But again, I'm not vested in the community. And yeah, not a lot of people appreciate it. I mean, a lot of people did, but a lot of people didn't. Wow. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I mean, that was the fear that everybody had telling their parents was like, their parents would say, well, do you want to dress up in women's clothing? I mean, that was just sort of the go to. Right. And can't the answer just be who cares? Now it can. Yeah. But it can. in 2008, 2006, when we filmed it, no. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone has a different story about that, too. Yep. 
it's uh, I'm glad that we're getting to where to closer to where we need to be, but we're still not there. We're, we're, I don't believe we're ever going to be there. I don't think so either. Quite frankly, it's just the nature of human nature. No, we're like, you know, watch national geographic. Everyone's just trying to, you know, all those animals are trying to just keep control of their turf. <laughs> That's right. And they'll small and kill and, you know, and we're the worst of, of all of them. The so. worst. <laughs> so no, are we all going to be accepting? Not a chance. No, no, but it's glad. I, mean, I sound like a downer, like wah, wah. No, no, no. But it's, I'm glad that we're closer to acceptance. It will get better. It will get better. No. And that's, but it's going to take generations Yes. for that to happen. Absolutely. Because as long as, you know, I was watching um, the, the hearings yesterday with, the athletes, mm-hmm. the gymnastics mm-hmm. athletes. And I thought, look at this whole panel as old white people. Right. Or how about what's happening in Texas? Yeah. I mean, I, what? Old white men are making decisions. And it's like, until that group of people in our country become younger and hipper and it's new generations. I mean, it takes generations. Look how old some of these people are. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Most of them, old white men from a Totally different generation. Yeah. Trying to make decisions for 20s and 30 year olds. And things I don't even understand. That's what amazes me. Anyways, that was sort of my whole question about the pageant. I, I haven't seen it. I've seen uh, Life in the Doghouse. I've seen Harry and Snowman, but I haven't seen that one. And I, I when I was doing some research and reading, I was like, man, I got to watch that. That's going to be amazing. That one, the only way you can watch that is on my website. Okay. I have, a, I have a free link to it, to Vimeo. Okay. So then I'll take a look the on rights that. have long since disappeared on all the music and everything. So it's not anywhere to be bought, purchased or rented or anything. Yeah. Okay. What uh, are you allowed to give us a sneak peek about your up and coming projects or your up and coming releases? You have a couple that are not released yet. Am I right? I have three, three that are not released. I am. We follows a woman named Willow mm-hmm. who is in her late fifties and she has dissociative identity disorder, which was formerly called multiple personality disorder, which is caused by severe childhood abuse and neglect. And her journey, she's compartmentalized into, you know, 40 plus different parts, different personalities that hold different memories, different emotions that enabled her to get through the abuse and enabled her as say like a five-year-old or six-year-old girl to go to school the next day after being raped and function My God. Like a normal kid. So the film follows her journey of trying to figure out all the different parts, trying to put the puzzle pieces together of what happened to her and what her life was like and how she's trying to heal. And it's quite fascinating. It's not like any other multiple personality film or show that you've seen because most of them were always exploitive. And there was, you know, there was a a character who was the, the, who liked sex. There was a character who liked to spend the money. You know what I mean? There was a character who liked to dress like a slot and it's just not like that. I mean, the reality of it, you know, it's really about this disorder. Yeah. Yeah. And when does that come out? That one will come out in 2022. We don't have a home yet. We're just sending it on the, all three of them we're sending on the film festival circuit for 2022. Okay starting in, you know, January, February, and then by the end of the year, hopefully they'll have homes. Right. So tell me about your other two. Paragold, is that one? Paragold follows four para-equestrians, dressage riders. Oh, amazing. And it there's four, there's a boy and three young women, and I'll say a boy, a young man, mm-hmm. and three young women who have various physical disabilities, significant disabilities. Some are inherited genetically some were accidents and you know one is through strokes and 
when you see these, how inspiring these people are to be able to get up on a 1200 pound animal and compete with half their body being paralyzed or their arms or their legs not working, it's really incredible. And yeah. two of the four characters, you know, end up making it to the Paralympics. They need to be fearless to do that, really. They're fearless. Yeah. yeah. And they they live in they live in the moment, which a lot of people don't do. Yeah. And watching it makes you realize, wow, you know, uh, you should be able to do you shouldn't be able to do anything because that's, you know, people tell all the kids nowadays you it's can bullshit. do anything. Sorry. It's bullshit. It's not the truth. No. You can't do anything. You can't. You have to know what you're good at yes. and when you're not. Yes. And be realistic and not listen to, you know, everybody getting a ribbon or a trophy. Because that's just not real. the real world. Nope. There's some things you're just bad at. Yep. <laughs> and it's okay to be bad at them, but you're just bad. But this inspires you to go for whatever your dream is, whatever you're good at. You know, that these people are good at riding. They loved horses. And for whatever reason, didn't let this disability get in their way. Yeah. I don't have any information about your third one. The third one, because I haven't really told anybody about it. It's called Dawn, a Charleston legend. Is it okay that we're going to, I mean, we're going to release yeah. this and okay. Absolutely. I don't not talk about things. It's another piece of advice. I'll come back to this. Yeah. Dawn. Advice I would give a young filmmaker. A lot of times, and I did it the first one, you want to keep it close, keep it secret, keep, you know, not talk about it, you know, because you no. I found that if you don't talk about it, you're never going to raise money. You're not going to get interest in it. I would ju- I get on a, a mountaintop and scream. I'm doing this movie. This is what it's about. I've acquired the rights to it. I want to raise money. Who wants to help? Yeah. So because the first one I kept so quiet, hush, 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 hush. Yeah. And I look back. I'm like, why? Yeah. Tell you everyone. Know? Tell everyone. And that's you know how many people came to me and tried to help me or you know gave me funding. Yeah. The bigger the network, the more power you have. Yes. Yeah. And so Dawn, the Charleston legend, is a, it's a short film. It's only 45, 40, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's about a transgender woman from the late 1960s who lived in Charleston, North Carolina. Ooh. And prior to transitioning, she was a prolific writer, wrote about 10 different books, yeah. lived in New York and society New York, lived in society Charleston as Gordon Langley Hall, Okay, transitioned, and then worse than the transition in 1969 in the South, she married a black mechanic. Wow. And then went on to quote unquote get pregnant and wow. uh, show up with a mixed race baby in 1972. Proceeds to lose all her money. Husband turns schizophrenic. It's a remarkable story that nobody knows about. How did that story find you? I read a book about it almost 20 years ago. And it was a very non-empathetic depiction of her life. Mm-hmm. It was out to prove that everything she ever said was a lie. And there was no such thing as transgender back then. So you yeah. couldn't understand. All she wanted to be was herself, a mother, and a wife. Yeah. And she did it in a time and a place where it was really almost impossible, but she did it anyway. And so she had to tell stories yeah. and make things up. And I read that book many years ago and I thought, "There's this is just not right. There's something missing. And then I just hung on to the book and hung on and I got the rights from the daughter and felt like this was the right time to, to put it together. Did you just like call her up and say, hey, I want to do this movie and yada, yada, yada. And then then the legal stuff comes afterwards. Pretty much. I mean, it took me six months to find her. Right. Yeah. But when I finally found her. And she was not interested in having it done because that book 20 years ago ripped her mother apart. Yeah. So she was felt stung by it. But I, my perseverance was stronger than her will to say no. Yeah. <laughs> and so she agreed to do it. Amazing. 
2022, that's what we have to look forward to. They sound really amazing, actually. They're, yeah, they're really diverse. They're, you know, the Paragold one is my husband watched the early cut and just cried through the whole thing. Amazing. <laughs> that's pretty much what I did with Life in the Doghouse, by the way. I cried through the whole thing. I was oh like, God. oh my God. I, Ron and Danny have been on the show and I know them in a different aspect of my life, you know, through the equestrian industry. And I watched that and I was like, it's unbelievable. There's no way that if you have even this much of a connection with animals, that that wouldn't stab you in the heart. Just, right. yeah. And they're amusing human beings. They are really amazing. And not just with animals, but with people. Yes. Just with just in so many different ways. They're yeah. so compassionate and sensitive to what's going on around them and the needs of people and animals around them. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And now we've come to what some would call the very best part of the show, our segment appropriately named What's and Why's. It's where we get to ask our guests some questions that inquiring minds want to know. So without further ado, I bring you the What's and Why's for your listening pleasure. Who do you look up to and why? God, I look up to so many people. It's hard to... I look up to all the people that I work with. Mm-hmm for sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm looking at my professional side first. I don't sure. want people to think my husband is not getting that. But professionally, to all the people that I work with, I look up to them because they're so good at what they do, whether I mentioned before, it's the cameraman or the editor or the sound people, the producers, the archive producers. You know, I learned something from all of them. Mm-hmm. So I look, I don't really hire anybody that I don't look up to, which is sort of what the point that I brought up earlier. Surround yourself with good people. Yeah, and and look up to all them. I look up to my to my closest friends. They've all elevated me to be a better friend. Yeah. So I look up at them now. I look up at my husband and my family, all for different reasons. You know what my you know my mother and my father was not the easiest person in the world, and so I look up to the way she you know withstood all those years. Yeah. Yeah. What's something that brings you joy, and why? My dogs bring me tremendous joy. Ooh, how many dogs do you have? I have four dogs, two chihuahuas, and two dachshund mixes. And every day I get 25 minutes in the morning and I take them out on this 150-acre preserve, take the leashes off, and I walk with them in the morning before my day starts. And then when I come home from work, after they get fed, I don't know, 7, 6.30, something like that, I take them for another walk. And that gives me grounds you joy it grounds yeah. me it gives me joy this used to be my hobby so this filmmaking used to be what brought me the joy well when you convert your hobby into your career it becomes all consuming so yeah. i don't really have a hobby anymore because i do this all the time and i would do it whether i made if i won the lottery i would have quit my publishing job right if i won the lottery now i would continue to do the same thing yeah has it lost any of its sparkle for you Oh, yeah. It has. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first time you do something, the first time you get a deal, and the first time you're on a set, it's very exciting. And you can never get the first time. The first time you do any kind of drugs, the first time you It's like a first kiss. You never get that back. The first drink. (laughs) Yeah. The first, I'm I'm choosing all these vices, and I really should. Oh, it's okay. (laughs) But the first of anything is the most exciting, and the first couple. So, when the reality sets in, like when I was in publishing, I remember sitting as an assistant and looking at the corner office with the vice president thinking, oh my God, everything he says is important and exciting. 
And when I got to be the vice president in the corner office, I was still gossiping with my friends that are at other meetings <laughs> on Monday morning around, you know, having coffee. And it, we weren't saying all these brilliant things. So my interpretation of things at the beginning changes and it becomes a job. It becomes work. It becomes about numbers where when it's a hobby, it can really be creative. Yeah. So yeah. specific, and I'm talking specifically just with what I do. I didn't have to worry about all those things because I could go shoot for three or four or five weeks over a six month period and then put it on the shelf. There was no pressure to turn it into something. When it becomes a career, there's pressure yeah. to survive. And a timeline. Yeah. Yeah. When you look back through your life, what decision brings you the most happiness and why? The decision that I made that brings me the most happiness is probably the one to move to Florida and, and go after this career. Just follow your heart. Yeah. That's on the professional side. Because it's been an amazing 10 years. I've done so many different things and met so many different people. And I was, you know, I got fired at the right time. I got pushed into the pool when I needed to be pushed into the pool because I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have jumped in. I would have stayed doing what I was doing. And I didn't love it anymore. I had achieved what I wanted to achieve. I didn't want to become the president of the company. And I was only 42. Like, where else was there to go? Yeah. You either keep going up or you flatten out. And I was bored. I mean, I could have done that job in three days a week and I used to stretch it into five. And personally, I think, and then personally, I think getting into the relationship with my husband, because I had not, prior to meeting him, when I first moved here, I was not open to a relationship. I was not open. I was working and I was traveling and I was involved with my friends and I had my hobby and so I, that was a part of my life that was empty, mm-hmm. you know, and I, empty is a very negative word but because I didn't feel empty. I just no, I didn't understand. have anything going on yeah. in that part of my life. So that I'm really happy about that, Yeah, that I opened up and let it come in. Yeah. So that leads me to my next question, which is what is something that you feel people get wrong about you and why? People always think that I'm a know-it-all. Really? My family and close friends may think that I'm a know-it-all. I don't know it all is the right way to put it, but that I'm always right. Yeah. (laughs) People think that I'm more confident and secure than I really am. Mm -hmm. But the truth is I'm no different than anybody else. Everyone's insecure. Everyone's got, you brought it up earlier, the imposter complex. I read this many years ago in a book. that It was like 98 or 99% of all executives have this imposter syndrome where they feel like they've, they've somehow fooled their way through the door. Yeah in some aspect of their life. So I'm not as confident as everyone else may think that I appear. What I think shows that what they think is confidence is me going forward no matter what happens. As scary as it might be, if I see a train wreck in front of me rather than turn and run around, you know, or go the other direction, if I know I have to get to the other side, I will figure out a way to get to the other side. Doesn't mean I'm not scared to death doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how fear it like leads us. You know, it's almost like if you let more fear in your life, the further you're going to get ahead because it forces us to do things and keep moving forward and just do it anyways. Even though you're afraid, do it anyways. Exactly. But you know, not everybody does that. You're right. Yeah, you're right. And I'd say probably a, a majority of people don't do that. Yeah. They avoid, they do other things. They cancel, they reschedule, they this, they, they that. Cancel, they cancel, reschedule, yeah. they drink too much, they do drugs. You know, they eat too much. You know, all the things that happen when people get anxious or feel down or feel, you know, not confident. Mm-hmm. If I go to like a party 
and you open up the doors and there's a room full of people. Some people and a lot of people might sort of quietly go into the coat check and then go check their coat, then go get a drink, you know, or just sort of wait until someone, I charge right in and say, hi, how are you? Yeah. Everyone feels the same, I believe. It's just how you deal with it. Yeah. You know, you run, my aunt used to run to the bathroom for 20 minutes every time she came over to the house. I just put my hand out and say, hi, I'm Ron. And that nervous energy propels me forward. Yeah. And that, I think, comes across as overly confident. But I'm just as insecure on the inside as everybody else. Right, right. Or panicking or, you know, anxious about the, you know, being in a crowded place or whatever the scenario. Yeah. So if you could pick anybody in the world, who uh, would you like to hear on What's Your Why as a guest next and why? Who would I want to hear as a guest? I can tell you what Ron and Danny, uh, their answer was Betty White. Really? Yep. I was like, well, we're going to have our people call your people. I'd like to hear from Jeff Bezos. I'd like to know how it all started, how it began, where it began. Yeah. I saw a picture on the internet. Of, I don't know if it was really him in like this little room with the word Amazon painted across the wall. Yeah. And I don't know if that was really him, but I don't know anything about his beginnings. Yeah, that's a, and that's, I think it'd be fascinating to know how you go from some regular guy to recreating buying around the entire world. Right. You know, consumerism. He's I changed so. an entire culture and the way that it interacts and his creativity. At least it seems that way. It's all his creativity. Right. And there's nothing about him. You know, mm -hmm. you got Steve Jobs, you, you know, you do have Bill Gates from Microsoft. You know, Warren Buffett, like a lot of these billionaires, we are, we know about them. Mm -hmm. Don't know anything about Jeff Bezos. You're right. We know nothing. Except I think he's still trying to get to Mars. To Mars or wherever the heck he's going. Yeah, I don't really know. I'm not going to be one of those citizens on that flight. That's for sure. No. No, <laughs> no I'll live in fear on, on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't really covered that maybe you want people to hear or know about? Is if you want to check out the trailer for Paragold. There's a trailer at paragoldmovie.com, P-A-R-A-G-O-L-D movie.com. And if you're interested in any of my other films, uh, if you want to read about them, if you want to see trailers, or even in the case of pageant, watch the whole film, you can go to docutainmentfilms.com, D-O-C-U-E-N-T-A-I-N-M-E-N-T, -E 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 like documentary and entertainment films.com and people can go to the same website if anyone here listening wants to support any of your future projects as well correct absolutely amazing you can always give money at my website. always <laughs> or just a quick phone call and know that they're tax deductible and they will go towards <laughs> the actual making of the film wholeheartedly i agree with that mm -hmm. ron thank you very much for your time i really appreciate it more than you know oh you're welcome this was a lot of fun i'm glad thank you take care Do you like how you're hearing today's episode? I don't mean how you're listening to it, but how you're hearing it. Whether you're driving in your car or listening on some pods, there's one thing that I'm certain of, that this podcast has been produced with the most enjoyable hearing experience possible. For those of you that know me, you know that these skills are most certainly not in my repertoire. So for that, What's Your Why has Twisted Spur Media Solutions to thank. Twisted Spur is an all-encompassing solution-based media company that's everything magic. Offering digital solutions in podcast and audiobook editing and production, online course and membership design and development, in addition to content creation, online paid advertising management and project planning, 
It's a one-stop shop of mad skills that Heather and her team bring to every project they work on. I can and will speak from personal experience when I say that Heather is a true advocate for quality, and you won't find a better solution for your digital project than Team Twisted Spur. If you like what you hear or even just want to nose around, check them out at twistedspurmedia.com, where the process is easy and the solution is even better. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of What's Your Why? Our listeners, guests, and our sponsors too. It's our hope that you enjoyed your time with us and possibly gained some new perspective as well. It's said that we can learn something new every day if we just listen, and that knowledge has a beginning, but no end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be safe, be well, and remember, always leave people better than you found them. A Twisted Spur Media Production.